0: Well, I invite you this morning to take your Bibles, uh, your electronic device, your phone, uh, whatever you may be using, or the pew Bible in front of you, and join me in the Gospel of Mark. We're continuing our series, it's going to be a 16-week series that will take us through the Gospel of Mark. Each week, we're not going to try to cover the whole chapter, but we'll choose verses out of each chapter. So last week we talked about uh, from chapter one, this morning we'll be focusing on a portion of chapter two. Matter of fact, the first 12 verses in chapter two. So I invite you to follow along this passage of scripture, beginning with verse one of chapter two. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let him down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves and said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. May God bless the reading of his word to us uh, this morning. Well, if you do any public speaking or any teaching or any preaching, uh, you're going to have to learn how to deal with distractions. Uh, Distractions come in all kinds of, of forms. Uh, I, was re- I remember when I was in a speech class, one of our assignments was to do a heckling speech. Now, what that meant was we were to give a speech and everyone in the class, they had permission to do anything to us short of bodily harm to see if we could continue with our train of thought and give our message. So different speakers uh, got up, they were throwing paper wads at them, they were interrupting them, and when I got up to speak, two of the bigger guys in the class came up, one took me by the feet, the other grabbed me up around the shoulders, and they carried me parallel across the entire class the entire time I was speaking, while others were heckling me other ways. Distractions. There's probably not a pastor who has preached very long who's had the distraction of a crying baby that parents refuse to take out of the auditorium. And they cry and they cry and they cry and they cry. Long ago, I heard an old-time preacher, and he said it was his belief that whenever you got to the very serious part of a message, that the devil pinched all the babies that were in the auditorium. Uh, Pastor Craig Peters was sharing with me uh, this week when we had breakfast together that he was speaking in Guatemala, and as he was teaching. Uh, A chicken came into the room and a bunch of people chasing the chicken all around the room. Uh, Another pastor here in, in Akron, I was told years ago that while he was preaching, a bird somehow got into the auditorium on Sunday morning. And as just had everybody's attraction, watching the bird, and finally he said, okay, folks, just watch me. I'll give you a play-by-play of what our ushers are doing to try to catch this bird. And I understand it was quite hilarious on that, but distractions occur. We often don't think, as we're reading biblical stories uh, about different elements Such is in the story this morning, and I've entitled this message, From Distraction to Demonstration, that there was a distraction while Jesus was teaching. Now, if we look in Mark, we're going to see that the crowds are being drawn to Jesus. Back in uh, chapter 1 in verse 21, it says that they went into Capernaum. And down in verse 28, it says, And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. So Jesus' fame is spreading. Why? Because he's performing miracles and he's casting out demons. If you go down in chapter 1, in verse 37, we read, And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. So everybody's looking for Jesus. They want to see these mighty works. And then down in verse 45 of chapter 1, it says, but he went out and began to talk freely about it, talking about someone that was healed and then was telling everybody about it. It says, and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him, from every quarter. So wherever Jesus is, the crowds are coming. So it almost seems, as chapter 2 opens, that Jesus, with his disciples, is sneaking in to Capernaum. And he's there, and we're told that he was at home at the end of verse 1. It's probably the home of Peter. Because we, from other passages of Scripture, we gather that Peter lived in Capernaum. So Jesus is there, he's in the home, and verse 2 says, And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even at the door. So the house is full. It's packed. People would guess there's probably 50 to 75 people who are packed into this house. They're all there hoping to see Jesus do something. But notice what we're told at the end of verse 2. It says, and he was preaching the word to them. They've come to see miracles. They've come to see signs. But what is Jesus doing? He's preaching the word to them. It says in verse 3, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So four men are bringing a man who is paralyzed to Jesus. And when they get there, they can't get in. The house The house is so packed, even the doorway is packed, there is no way for them to get in. So what do they do? They go up on the roof of the house. And they're going to tear a hole in the roof so that they can lower their friend down. So that Jesus hopefully will heal him. Jesus is inside sharing the word of God with them. The word that's used for preached here is not the normal word that's used for preached. Uh, It's a word that means to speak. Uh, It means a conversation type of tone. So the, the setting here in this home would be much like what we would do in a connect group. Uh, If you're not a part of a connect group in our church, I would encourage you to get into one of these smaller groups within our church where you can be known and you can know others. And in those groups, you're not going to have someone get up and preach at you during that time. Jesus is there in a form of conversation. He is sharing with them the word of God. And I can imagine there's questions and answers going on as Jesus is sharing in this type of setting. Now, the homes at that time, basically they would have one large room. There might be a couple of rooms inside, but then there would be a stairway that went up to the roof of the house. And this roof would be made out of there would be beams that would be put in place then there would be different sticks that would be laid down often then they would put thatch of some type, whatever they could find they would put that down then they would take mud and put the mud on top of all of that level that out and then put some type of tile On top of that because they would use the roof of their homes as a living area as a gathering area now when we read about in this passage that they opened the the roof think about what that would mean if you're down trying to teach and there are people above you removing a portion of the roof number one it's going to make some noise right They're not going to be able to do this quietly. Uh, Number two, have you ever done a a repair job on your roof? If you have, you'll know that it's not always uh, as clean and neat as you might like it. And a roof made out of these materials, you're going to have things falling down into the room uh, so that it is going to be a a distraction that is going on. So we see this distraction while Jesus is teaching. And there's nothing in the passage that says that Jesus stopped his teaching while they were doing this, that they continued to talk. Uh, I'm sure many of them there were distracted, wondering what in the world is going on up there. But we have the distraction. The next thing I want you to see in the passage, is the faith. The faith. Look at it in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, here the four guys have brought the man who's paralyzed. They've torn open a hole in the church, now, or a, a hole in, in the house. Now think about how big that hole would have to be. To put a guy on a a stretcher and to be able to lower him down through. I wonder if they ever came back and repaired the roof. There's nothing in the passage that says whether they did. I would hope that they came back or that Jesus had his disciples repair the roof of this house. But it would have to be a big hole, right? To get a guy that you're going to lower him down before. See, sometimes we read these stories and we don't think about what this would mean. So these four have lowered him down before Jesus because why? They have faith. They believe that Jesus will do something. They believe that Jesus will heal him. Now I think the faith is not only on the part of the four individuals but it's also on the part of the man himself. And I'll tell you why I believe that in just a moment as we move on into the passage. But these men have faith. Do you realize to please God you have to have faith? You know, Hebrews chapter 11 reminds us that without faith it is impossible to please God. You cannot please God without trusting God. And that's what faith really is. It's trusting God. And these men have come. And as they come, there's an obstacle before them. The obstacle is the house is full. The door is blocked. The the place is so packed with people. But they don't give up. Because of their faith. They say, we have to get our friend before Jesus. And probably the the paralytic is saying as well, I have to get to Jesus. And so they go up and tear a hole in the roof. And he's lowered down. And verse 5 says, when Jesus saw their faith, he recognizes the faith that they have. And dear friend, let me say to you as well this morning that if you're going to please God, you must have faith. You must trust in Him. And if you will take that step of faith toward Jesus, He will know that that faith is there because He works in our hearts to create within us that desire to follow Him and to trust Him. So their faith. The next thing I want you to see is the greatest need. The greatest need, verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, actually, the word used for son there is a word that means uh, my child. It's a deep, affectionate word for someone. Your sins are forgiven. They have come to Jesus looking for physical healing for their friend. The paralytic has come hoping for physical healing. But what does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. Now, I have to imagine there are probably some in the crowd and maybe the four friends and the man himself are a little bit disappointed at this point in time, that Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. He has come to Jesus seeking physical healing, but Jesus has given him something of more value than the physical healing. He has offered to him spiritual healing. See, we can help people in this world with their physical needs, and we should be doing that. But there's something greater that is of need than meeting that which is physical, it is meeting that which is spiritual. Because if we only meet the physical, it only lasts for this lifetime, and our lives are but a vapor, they're here and then they're gone But when we meet spiritual needs, in particular, the greatest need that man has of his sins to be forgiven, that goes for all eternity. See, sin is our greatest problem. Sin is our greatest enemy. Sin is that which separates us from God. Sin is that which renders us spiritually dead. Sin not forgiven results in eternal death in a place called hell. Sin shatters relationships. It causes us to think foolishly. It causes us to make bad decisions. The greatest need that we have is not of our physical needs being met, but our sin problem being dealt with. Warren Worsby has written, Forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need. It costs the greatest price. And it brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. Son, your sins are forgiven. And God is the only one who can do that. God can deliver us from the penalty of sin. We refer to that as justification. God can deliver us from the power of sin in our lives. We call that sanctification. And God can ultimately deliver us from the very presence of sin. And that is glorification. And when we are in his presence, we will be freed from sin. Well, the next thing I want you to see in our passage in verses 6 and 7 is the accusation. Now, some of the scribes, verse 6 tells us, were sitting there. Now, the scribes were the scholars of the day. The scribes were those whose job it was to to copy the scriptures and to be the guardians of God's word. And they probably heard of this man, Jesus, and they are there to hear what he has to say and to see if it lines up with the scriptures. Now, we know from a parallel account that there are Pharisees there as well. Mark doesn't mention them, because remember, Mark's primary audience is not the Jewish audience. But some of the scribes may have been Pharisees. Scribes could be Pharisees, or they could be Sadducees, or they could be in neither of those, those parties. But we do know there are Pharisees that are present here, whether they're of the scribes or whether there are other individuals there as well. We know that they are present. And they are questioning, we're told, In their hearts. Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. There's the accusation. Jesus is committing blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The accusation. No one but God can forgive sins. Only he has the power to do that. So in their minds to think, who does he think he is that he can say to a person that your sins are forgiven? Only God can do that. Now the penalty for blasphemy was to take him outside and stone him. But we don't get to that in this particular setting. Because the next thing we see in the passage is the question. Verse And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit. Let's stop right there for a second. Now we don't know whether this is just in his humanity. He can perceive what they're thinking. Have you ever said to someone, I know what you're thinking. I've said this and I know what you're thinking about what I just said. Well, you may be right, you may be wrong. You don't know for sure what they're thinking and probably thank God that everyone can't read what we're thinking, right? (laughs) Some of you are thinking this morning, I wish this preacher would hurry up and quit so I can get out of here. You can, all right. Jesus, though, perceives what they're thinking. Now, I often laugh. Uh, What would it be like trying to question someone that knows your very thoughts? And that's the setting that we've got here. The opponents of Jesus, Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. They haven't said this in this setting. They are thinking this, and Jesus knows it. So maybe he's using his divine attributes here, of knowing what they're thinking, because he knows. And perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Now that had to be a shock to them, right? They haven't said a word, but Jesus says, well, why are you questioning this in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. There's the question what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or rise, pick up, you're healed, take your, your, your bed, and walk. Well, obviously, the easiest thing to say is, Your sins are forgiven. Why? There's no proof whether it happened or it didn't happen. You can't perceive and tell whether sins have been forgiven or not been forgiven. That's real easy, Jesus says, to say, especially for the Son of God, for the one who has the power to forgive sin, your sins are forgiven. There's no proof that the crowd can see that that has actually occurred. So that's the easier to think. That's much easier than to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Why? Because you're going to see immediately, did it happen or did it not happen? So we see in verses 10 to 12 the demonstration. Then, Verse 10, but that you may know. I'm going to do this so that you may No. See, when Jesus performs his miracles, signs, and wonders, it's not just to attract a crowd and to put on a show. It's for the purpose of teaching. It's for the purpose of driving home who he is and driving home the truth of God. But that you may know That the Son of Man, now this is the most popular name that Jesus uses for himself. And when he refers to himself as the Son of Man, he is going to have the attention of the scribes. Remember, it's the scribes that are questioning. It's the scribes that are thinking this way. They are biblically literate. They know what the scriptures teach and what the scriptures say. And so when he says son of man, their thoughts are going to go immediately to Daniel chapter 7. Because in Daniel chapter 7, in verses 13 and 14, Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Get the reference there? This is who Jesus is claiming to be. destroyed but so that you will know the son of man and when he uses that term to refer to himself as the son of man he is claiming deity for himself he is claiming to be God see he's going back to what they were thinking in their hearts what were they thinking in their hearts he's committed blasphemy because only God Can forgive sin so that you might know jesus is saying so that you might know that the god man is standing before you you know every now and then i come across these liberal writers who will say jesus nowhere ever claimed to be god i wonder have you read the new testament at all Are you even aware of what the terms in the New Testament mean? When Jesus says he's the Son of Man, he's claiming deity for himself. And he is claiming the power in this passage to forgive sins. The demonstration. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And you know what happens? Immediately, he is healed. And the end of the verse says, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything. Like this, I wonder how many times during the earthly ministry of Jesus there were individuals that made the statement, we never saw anything like this. We know from John chapter 3 that Nicodemus made that statement. We know you must come from God because no one can do the things you're doing. We've never seen things like this. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed, and walk? So you may know that I have the power to say, your sins are forgiven. I also am going to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Don't you think word of this spread throughout Capernaum? fame of Jesus is growing more and more. Now I wish that in light of all of this, I could say to you this morning that Capernaum became a hotbed for the followers of Jesus. I would like to be able to say that word of this spread throughout the city of Capernaum and people were so amazed because they would know this man who has been healed. And they will hear the story of what has happened and what Jesus has said, that it would make such a difference in that city, that there would be mass conversions in Capernaum and that people would be followers of Jesus. But I can't tell you that. Because that's not what occurred. Later on in his ministry, in Matthew 11, in verses 23 and 24, Jesus will talk about Capernaum. And this is what he says. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Do you catch the force of those words? If what was done in you, Capernaum, had been done in Sodom, they would have repented, and the city would not have been destroyed. It will be more tolerable for them on the day of judgment than for you. See, with great blessing comes great responsibility. I think of that often for the Church of America in the day and age in which we live. With great blessing, what generation has had greater access to the Word of God than the generation in which we live? What generation... Has greater availability to go on the Internet and find out the truth that is posted there from the individuals about Jesus. What generation has the availability to, at the click of a, a moment, to call out? individuals and call up individuals who are truthfully proclaiming the word of God and to hear it. To be able to pull it up on your television screen or on your computer. With great blessing comes great responsibility. And dear friends, if I can talk to each one of us individually here for just a moment. One day we will all appear before Christ. And if you're here this morning, and if you've been attending this church, you are not going to be able to say, for Christ, I've never heard, I don't know. No one ever shared with me the need for faith. No one ever shared for me the truth of the gospel. I didn't know. You know. And you're making a decision whether you will choose to follow Jesus and be his disciple, or you will choose to turn away. And just as Jesus said of Capernaum, let me say to us this morning, it will be more tolerable for Sodom on the day of judgment than it will be for us. Jesus met the greatest need of the paralyzed man. Your sins are forgiven. And he wants to meet the greatest need that you have. That your sins be forgiven. And if you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I plead with you, don't leave here today without putting faith in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our Savior. Just as we were singing this morning that we exalt him, this morning we put our faith and confidence in him. We believe by faith. And Father, I pray that each and every individual here would exercise that faith in Jesus. Right before I close here this morning with every head bowed, I wonder, is there anyone here who would say this morning, the Spirit of God has spoken to you and you recognize your need for a Savior? And you're going to put your faith in Jesus this morning. If so, I'd like for you just to slip your hand up so that I can include you as I close in prayer. Anyone this morning that God is so spoken to your heart. Father, thank you for the salvation that we have in Jesus. Help us that we might live our lives in a way that will please you. For this we pray in Jesus name. Amen.